Distinguished Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, negotiations with the President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, took place in a frank and businesslike atmosphere. I think we can call it a success and a very fruitful round of negotiations. To a great extent, it was possible thanks to the personal engagement of President Trump. We carefully analyzed the current status, the present and the future of the Russia-United States relationship, key issues of the global agenda. It's quite clear to everyone that the bilateral relationship are going through a complicated stage, and yet those impediments, the current tension, the tense atmosphere, essentially have no solid reason behind it. The Cold War is a thing of past. It's 2021, and for a minute, let's put aside the political divisions that have caused America to fracture at its seams and sit back and examine a question that I think, as curious citizens, we want to know. That simple question is a question that maybe was asked when President Richard Nixon stepped down under the Watergate scandal. Is Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, going to jail? And if he is going to jail, who is going to prosecute him? And what is he going to be prosecuted for? And what will be the legal machine that drives this prosecution? Is it possible for the very first time in the history of this country, a president will see the inside of a jail cell. Nick, I want to start with you. You investigated Nixon's taxes. You see here hundreds of millions of dollars in debt, um, uh, chronic losses. You say compared to Trump, Nixon was a, quote, rookie amateur. Wow, why? He really was. He really was. What Nixon did was essentially backdate one deed for a gift of papers to the United States government. He did that when Congress had eliminated that deduction. He basically created a phony deed. Uh, it looks like Trump has done a whole series of activities that could qualify as tax fraud, not tax avoidance. This is a very important distinction. Uh, the New York Times headline read Trump's tax avoidance. But there's a key difference with tax fraud. Tax avoidance is simply getting, um, taking the tax code and getting the most deductions you can get uh, under the code that's perfectly legal. Tax fraud, however, is lying about what your income was, lying about what your deductions are. Uh, and there's a couple of items that just stand out uh, in that report from the New York Times that really appear to go beyond tax avoidance. I mean, the most glaring one is this one on the consulting fees. Some $747,622 that the New York Times was able to tie into payments that went to Trump's daughter, Ivanka. There's no reason, legitimate reason, for her to get those consulting fees since she was being paid already as a Trump um, employee. The only possible reason for doing this was somehow to move money around so that it wouldn't be taxed to Donald Trump, but would in effect go on Ivanka Trump's tax return, who probably had certain losses that she could take against it. So in the end, the government gets zero dollars. All so of this is, 
Yeah, sure. So let me know, but when you lay this out, I mean, I guess just the blunt question is, do you think Trump could end up going to jail if he is not reelected because of anything in here? No question about it. And his daughter could go to jail, too. Tax evasion is a five year felony. It's a pretty serious crime. And the more money that's stolen, the longer you go to jail for. I want to be clear on something. If you look at the media landscape, we find ourselves at the peak of misinformation, false narratives, subterfuge, and red herrings. Stories running on major networks are full of shit and lies. And every goddamn journalist worth his salt has looked into almost every angle. But that is the main problem. There is no one cutting through what is the truth and who the fuck is lying. A new article uh, called Married to the Mob, What Trump Owes the Russian Mafia. Those are the words on the cover of the September issue of The New Republic. Investigative reporter Craig Unger looks at how the Russian Mafia has used the president's properties, including Trump Tower and the Trump Daj Mehel, to launder money and hide assets. Unger writes, quote, whether Trump knew it or not, Russian mobsters and corrupt oligarchs used his properties not only to launder vast sums of money from extortion, drugs, gambling, and racketeering, but even as a base of operations for their criminal activities. In the process, they propped up Trump's business and enabled him to reinvent his image. Without the Russian mafia, it's fair to say Donald Trump would not be president of the United States. Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. And I want to be clear. The story and investigation I want to pursue is twofold. The first track is trying to uncover who is actually investigating Donald Trump right now. Is it Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance? Is it the State Attorney General in New York, Letitia James? Or, in an unprecedented move, will the fame-hungry prosecutors of the Southern District in New York, or the Eastern District, who is used to going after mobsters, step in and make the case of a lifetime going after a president. You cannot indict the president, nor can you issue criminal process with regard to a case involving the president. If you believe Rudy Giuliani, it's a firm no, they can't indict Trump. But arguments have gone back and forth for almost half a century. And this Nixon-era document is key, a 1973 Justice Department memo that looked at criminal prosecutions of the highest office holders was clear. There is no express provision in the Constitution that immunizes a president, but an indictment would interfere with the president's unique official duties, most of which cannot be performed by someone else. And constitutionally, only Congress should be accorded the power to interrupt the presidency. It does put all the eggs in the congressional basket that since the people of the United States elect the president, they think uh, it's only fitting that uh, the, represent the legislature of the United States be the one to potentially oust him. And there is the president. But in 45 years, a few events may have changed minds. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. First Nixon, then Clinton. Two presidential scandals that led to Supreme Court decisions that no president is above the law. 
Then in 2000, another DOJ memo reinforcing the merits of impeachment because that process lay in the hands of duly elected and politically accountable officials rather than those of a jury. This could be Mueller's view, though there could be presidential peril even without an indictment. Most people don't know what an indictment is. And he can do quite a bit of damage if, you know, to the president just by saying that the president committed a crime, whether or not the president's indicted. What is also apparent is that I have the luxury of all the reporting on this subject matter, from the national security journalists at The Times, the immaculate political work of The Washington Post, the blowhards of Fox News, and the liberal bloviators on CNN. Every clip, every soundbite, every quote, every comment or opinion is at my fingertips. And going through the amount of content that exists on this subject matter is not only staggering, it's important. And I'm going to go piece by piece. See, the story of whether Donald Trump and members of his immediate family and other administration members being arrested or indicted for crimes might be the biggest true crime story ever told. Well, he was looking to open a casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. He had uh, primarily been working with his dad developing properties in New York City, and he wanted to know what kind of risks my dad's business has a reputation, and I don't want to jeopardize that by going into Atlantic City. So he had someone he had met uh, in Atlantic City who was an FBI informant, a guy named Dan Sullivan, who was a teamster, and he introduced Trump to these FBI agents. Oh, and the FBI agent said, you know what, Mr. Trump might be better to stay out of Atlantic City, right? Yeah, they said, you know, there's a lot of kind of shady people uh, doing business down there, and the mob has some influence, and so there might be better ways you could invest your money if you're worried about your reputation. Because this was Atlantic City in the 80s, and among builders, it was widely known that it was almost impossible to go down there without getting your hands at least a little dirty, it That's right. At the beginning, banks wouldn't even really uh, work down there, so it was something people stayed away from, but Donald Trump uh, went forward nonetheless. He did, and you found some specific people that he dealt with. I'm going to start with the first who is a man described by prosecutors as an agent of the Philadelphia mob, is that right? Right, this was a guy named Ken Shapiro, and he was a scrap metal dealer in Philadelphia, and uh, he also worked with the Philadelphia mob and the mob boss at the time, Nikki Scarfo, who they called Little Nikki, and he and the other gentleman I just mentioned, Dan Sullivan, the teamster who knew Trump owned a piece of property together, and uh, Trump needed it to build his first casino, so they leased it to him. In order to tell the greatest true crime story ever, we're gonna have to cover a lot of ground and sift through the bullshit. I'm not gonna fault Donnie for being in bed with a few mobsters in Philly or New York in the 80s. That was a time where if you wanted to build buildings, you had to deal with the fellas. It's just the way it went. I would also argue that most legit developers in New York City and Philly in 2021, they still deal with Italian organized crime in some way. It's the cost of doing business. And these days, it's very subtle. It's very nuanced. No one's being found in the trunk of a car, at least not yet. What I want to understand is how did these early mafia days guide Donnie Boy as he started to branch out in the international waters and he started to play with the big boys of international organized crime? 
We have more breaking news now. Breaking news Thursday. This is about uh, President Trump's personal bodyguard and confidant, Keith Schiller, and his testimony to Congress this week. So we, here's what we're learning. that Sources tell CNN that back in 2013, uh, after a business-related meeting uh, to the Miss Universe pageant, a Russian participant in this meeting, this is all happening in Russia, uh, offered to, quote, send five women to then-private citizen Donald Trump's hotel room in Moscow. Uh, and it was rejected. Russia, Russia, Russia. I'm sure everyone is beyond fucking tired with the subject of Trump and Russia. And I'm sure as shit, CNN and other mainstream media outlets really beat that story to an inch of its life. My argument, though, is you haven't heard the actual story of the connections between the Trump family and Russian organized crime or proxies working for the Russian intelligence apparatus. Because most of the reporters at all of these fancy media organizations don't have the balls, the sources, or the connections to actually dig deep enough into what really was the direct evidence that existed as it relates to this subject matter. Hello, I'm Ivanka Trump. Welcome to Trump Ocean Club International Hotel and Tower Panama. It was the first Trump-branded tower to go up overseas with Ivanka Trump pitching it. Or you can opt to dine on your private balcony. Luxurious, yes, but like many real estate projects in Panama, also a magnet for dirty money, according to insiders and a former Panamanian prosecutor. An NBC News investigation in conjunction with Reuters reveals brokers and buyers included Russian gangsters and a money launderer for Latin American drug cartels. Alexander Ventura was one of the tower's main brokers. I had some customers with some, uh, you know, questionable background. What does that mean? I mean, you know, you, I found out later, not in the beginning, from like it belongs to mafia, the Russian mafia, thing like that. Ventura is now a fugitive accused of fraud. We agreed to disguise his appearance. Did the Trump organization want to know who these buyers were, where the money was coming from? No. Not that I'm aware of, you know, no, not at all. Monty Friesner was in Panama at the time units at the Trump Ocean Club were being sold. He's a convicted former money launderer and knows Ventura and his partners. So Ventura was marketing the Trump Ocean Club as part of a real estate portfolio where corrupt people could park their money. You got it. And they did. In order to get to the truth, evidence, or even the right ballpark as a reporter, as it relates to Don Trump in Russia, you would have to be an expert and have access into three distinct worlds. The first being Russian organized crime. Well, good luck with that. There basically is one book that is the Bible of Russian organized crime, and that is called Red Mafia. That book was written by journalist Robert Friedman. He alone, arguably, has done the most work ever by a journalist in America on the Russian mob to date. New York, the 1970s. A wave of emigres flee the biting oppression of communist Russia. Among them, criminals intent on pursuing their version of the American dream. I tell you, you're not paying me, I kill you. In partnership with the Italian mafia, the Russian gangsters engage in lucrative gasoline scams. 
It was between eight and ten million dollars a week that we were bringing into the bank. Russian crime groups evolve into global syndicates, trafficking drugs, women, and weapons. Following the collapse of communism in 1991, a new wave of Russian criminals specializing in profitable white-collar crime flood New York City. He is criminal to the court. He wanted to build that name. He wanted to be the number one brigade in Brooklyn. As warring Russian gangs terrorize New York, the federal authorities fight back. Can they stop the Russian mob gaining a foothold in America? Robert died in 1993. And with him died some of the most extensive reporting done on what is arguably one of the scariest and secretive underworlds operating today. The second expertise you would need to be able to understand is not only the practices of the KGB, but its current incarnation, the FSB. So my name is Luke Harding. I'm a journalist and a writer, and my new book is called Collusion, and it's about Donald Trump and Russia. I, I know about Russian espionage. I, I, I suffer from it myself to some degree. I, I spent four years in Moscow as the Guardian's bureau chief, and I had goons from the, the FSB, basically the KGB, breaking into my apartment, following me around the kind of icy streets of Moscow, sometimes in quite a kind of comic sort of a way. You don't really grow accustomed to FSB surveillance, but what, what we discovered, uh, basically you didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out that some strange people had been inside the flat, because unlike in the movies, they left a series of blindingly obvious clues. And I, I took advice from the British Embassy in Moscow from from, from diplomats from London, and they said, look, you know, terribly sorry, old chap, but your, your, your apartment is bugged. And I said, well, can you do something about it? And they said, no, we can't. Uh, and I discovered that they had video as well, including in the bedroom. I think I understand kind of how, how these sort of inter Russian intelligence people think, that they are convinced that any American journalist, any British journalist, that we're all spies. Uh, actually secretly working for the CIA or MI6, and the, that our goal is to kind of undermine Russia by writing kind of propaganda. Lastly, you would have to have reporting experience as it relates to international money laundering and the vast networks inside Russia, China, Panama, and other offshore destinations. Now, I have the utmost respect for all journalists and the heavy hitters at the Times, the Post, the Guardian in the UK, the Intercept, They've all done brilliant work, but none of them really hit the trifecta. And more importantly, I can guarantee you only a select few of them really have done any reporting on the Russian mafia or its complex connection in 2021 between the intelligence services and oligarchs doing business on a global level. It's really like trying to find a fucking unicorn. And I assume no one really wants to get poisoned. So my thesis is you might have heard little pieces of this story told in a fractured timeline in a very scattered attempt at basically saying, yeah, Donnie was in bed with the Russians, but was he? 
Over the past three decades, at least 13 people with known or alleged links to Russian mobsters or oligarchs have owned, lived in, and even run criminal activities out of Trump Tower and other Trump properties. Many used his apartments and casinos to launder untold millions in dirty money. Some ran a worldwide high-stakes gambling ring out of Trump Tower in a unit directly below one owned by Trump. So, weighty charges indeed. When I ask you, when I meet you on the street, what, the basic question, what is it about Trump and the Russians? Which may be even harder to answer. How do you answer? Well, there's been a lot of great reporting about Trump and the Russians lately, but if you want to know when he was first compromised by the Russians, I go back uh, 33 years to 1984, and at that time, a guy named David Bogdan walked into Trump Tower. He was a Russian immigre, and he had ties to the most powerful crime ring in, in Russia. And he sat down with Donald Trump, and he bought not one apartment, not two, but five condos in, in Trump Towers. And the state attorney general later ruled that, that that was laundering money. And Trump Towers, in many ways, had been set up as a perfect vehicle for money laundering. It was one of, at the time, it was one of only two buildings in New York City uh, where anonymous people could use shell companies to buy condominiums. So that, my friends, is where I'm gonna live for the entirety of this podcast. At the dirty center of Russian organized crime, the FSB intelligence service, and international money launderers who operate in this rare air that directly led to not only the hallowed halls of the White House, but to Donald Trump and his family and associates. The story will follow two paths. The first will be the characters inside Russia and the mafia who had business and personal ties with the president. And second, we will track in real time as the Don leaves office and what happens with the many investigations currently going on. Things changed dramatically around 2002, and at the time, Trump uh, was still reeling from his massive expansion in Atlantic City. He had ended up with owing $4 billion to 70 banks. I mean, those are not the kind of things you want on your resume if you're going to be running for president of the United States. And in 2002, a company called Bayrock moved into Trump Tower. It's a real estate company, and it, too, allegedly had ties to the Russian mafia. And they made uh, Donald Trump an offer he could not refuse. They were going to put up about a billion dollars in financing. Trump put up zero, and yet he got 18% of the profits on their joint ventures. Like I've said previously, this true crime investigation will start with the names and vast connections between Trump and Russian intel operatives, mafia chieftains, and shady operators who make up the global elite. It is documented that there is close to 60 of these connections. And we will start with possibly a name you might know, Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich. Roman and his ex-wife, Dasha Zukova, are close friends with Ivanka, and she took several trips with them, including one as their guest to Russia in 2014. Many of the Russian oligarchs have become extremely well-known after investing heavily in foreign companies. People like Roman Abramovich, Alexander Lebedev, 
and the now dead Boris Berezovsky are all extremely well known, if not household names in the UK. But who are the Russian oligarchs? What does the term mean? And how did they become so stinking rich? Let's start with the basics. An oligarch is someone who's part of an oligarchy. That's a form of government where power is in the hands of an elite few. Now, the Russian oligarchs don't hold political office, but they do have a lot of political influence. The term Russian oligarch basically refers to extremely wealthy business magnates from Russia, naturally, who made a hell of a lot of money out of the collapse of the Soviet Union. The British court is seeing two of Russia's richest battle it out in front of the bench. And it's no small claim either. Six and a half billion dollars is at stake. Exiled tycoon Maurice Brzozowski wants the cash from Chelsea football club owner Roman Abramovich, a man who usually keeps a low public profile. But as Ivor Bennett reports, it means Britons are getting a rare glimpse into the billionaire's lifestyle. It's been dubbed the battle of the oligarchs. In one corner is Mr A, estimated wealth 15 billion. Assets, four yachts, Chelsea Football Club and a French chateau. In the other corner, Mr B, estimated fortune 500 million. He had to sell his yacht, but he does still have his trusty stretch Maybach, which he never fails to show off. Roman Abramovich's rise to riches is a story precious few knew until now. His turn in the witness stand has lifted the lid on a life in the shadows. He revealed how some of his companies employed primarily disabled staff, landing lucrative 30% tax breaks. And he came clean on the piles of cash he paid for protection as he dived into the infamous aluminium wars of the 90s, where we now know someone was murdered every three days. Not exactly the clean-cut image, but one of Britain's most loved foreign imports. He did once say to, I think it was Le Monde, you know, the only difference between a rat and a hamster is PR and he, his PR has been very good. Presents a very benign image, you know, he doesn't really uh, come across aggressively, he doesn't really say anything at all. He wants to go respectable and, you know, suddenly we're all made aware of the rather sort of seedy origins of his wealth. Let's be clear. When you're worth $15 billion and you made that money in a business where, like they said, someone turns up dead every three days, I think you turn the corner from businessman to gangster. And with that money, you also catapult yourself into a world of global intelligence that includes MI6, the Mossad, the CIA, and others. Now, I'm not telling Ivanka who she can and can't be friends with. And as a private citizen, if she wants to rub elbows with oligarchs in the south of France, then so be it. But the second she stepped into the White House, all these connections became minefields. President Trump is warning special counsel Robert Mueller to stay out of his family business dealings. But if Mueller is following the money, it'll lead from the Trump family to a lot of people and transactions in Russia, often with ties to the government there. The overwhelming majority of uh, uh, former Russian oligarchs, uh, now I would call them operatives, they are really subordinate to Putin. Trump's closest business partner in Russia is likely Aras Agalarov, a real estate mogul and friend of Vladimir Putin, who reportedly paid Trump $20 million to bring the Miss Universe pageant to Moscow. And then there's Agalarov's son, Emin. Emin, wake up. Come on. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, Emin? He's a Russian pop star who helped set up a controversial meeting in Trump Tower between a Kremlin-linked lawyer 
Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, who led Trump's campaign. That piece of audio takes us to the next direct connection between Trump and the Russian mafia. Aras Agalarov and his son Emin. Aras is a huge real estate developer inside Russia. And twofold, he has been the main facilitator of bringing the Trump Tower project to the motherland. If you dig into Aras, a few curious things pop up. One of them is a video that was given to me. There's a spoof on The Godfather, with Aras, funny enough, playing out film scenes of Francis Ford Coppola's classic. Paramount Pictures представляет. Obviously, they are speaking Russian, but trust me, it's both weird and fascinating at the same time. The video was created as a birthday present for Aras. Well, the man on the right is Emin Agalarov. He's the Russian pop star at the center of the latest allegations about collusion between the Trump administration and the Russian government. He's very difficult to catch up with. He won't give an official statement on this. But I did manage to speak to him earlier, before this concert in Latvia. Why did you arrange that meeting between Donald Trump Jr. Okay, and the guys. Russian lawyer? Come join me for the show tonight. Yeah, we will, definitely. Excellent. Why did you? Any comments excellent, at all? Excellent, excellent, It's an important question to me. You know, the American public want to know, guys, you know, whether the Trump can administration... Can I have a drink? Yeah, of course you can. Without your presence? Let's Thank go. you very much. I mean, can I just ask you. you, did the Russian authorities give your family information <laughs> guys, to pass on, on to can the Trump I administration? Talk to my lawyer. I've already talked to him. He said you wouldn't comment. So I wouldn't comment. <laughs> but come on, these are, these are questions that you're not going to be able to not comment on at some point. Guys. You're going to have to answer them. I'm here to perform, to enjoy the show, and I'm not going to answer any questions. Why did your publicist Guys, say that you had information? I'm not going to answer any questions. I mean, if you asked him about it, trying to get a comment. You're not going to get a comment. Am I clear? You're not going to get a comment. Right, well, that was Amin Agalarov making it very clear indeed that he did not want to speak to us uh, about that issue. But the fact is, the allegations of collusion surrounding the, the Trump administration and the Trump campaign uh, and his role in that alleged collusion is probably not going to go away. Matthew Chance, CNN, in Yamala, Latvia. The argument to be made, and it's a strong one, is that Russia isn't like the United States. If you're a billionaire in Russia, you serve your master, Vladimir Putin. You serve at the honor of his behest. And he tracks every single fucking penny that comes in or out of Russia. These oligarchs that you see jetting around the world are not only global power players, they also are intelligence assets for the SFB. What's mine is yours kind of mentality. This isn't the CIA where they recruit guys from the Ivy League or the Special Forces. 
who and ran the FSB. The guy's operating at a high level, to say the least. So under that construct, if anyone at the level of Trump, or anyone for that matter, wants to play ball in Russia, you are working with Putin, whether you want to or not. You are, in essence, in business with the FSB. There's no separation, per se, of church and state. Russian money and business praise to the god of Vladimir. It was the week the glitz and glamour of the Miss Universe pageant came to Moscow. The year was 2013. USA! Connecticut's Aaron Brady represented the United States. We come out here every night because we've been lucky enough to have fireworks almost every other day that we've been here. At the center of all the pageant razzmatazz, Donald Trump, who owned the Miss Universe competition. It's an amazing country with, uh, you know, so many friends in Russia, and I'm very excited to be here. Only now are we getting a complete understanding of what was really going on behind the scenes, say investigative reporters Michael Isakov and David Korn. Their new book is called Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. They say Trump personally reviewed all 16 Miss Universe finalists before they were announced on the show. And he sometimes overruled the judges, who included model Carol Alt and rock star Steven Tyler. He could decide, because it's his pageant, who wins and who loses. And he would personally inspect all the contestants and decide for himself who he liked who we wanted up there on the stage. The authors say that Trump was obsessed with the idea of meeting Russian President Vladimir Putin. But the get-together fell through, apparently due to a traffic jam in Moscow on pageant night that forced Putin to bail out. He's very disappointed, but being Donald Trump, he thinks he has the answer for this. He tells one of his colleagues from the Miss Universe organization, you know, we can tell people that Putin came. No one would know. The authors say when Trump returned to America, Putin sent him a present as a consolation, a beautiful black lacquered box. Inside was a sealed letter. What the heck did that letter say? Good question. No one knows. For, for years now, Donald Trump has not talked about this letter. He brags about everything else, but he won't tell us what was in this private letter from Putin to him. As we start to navigate the myriad connections between Donnie Boy and the Ruskies, also keep in mind we are doing a real-time look at the developments inside the current investigations as our fearless leader heads towards the exit in January. But maybe not. Now, under the thematic working proposition that the Trump cabal is way more sophisticated and greedy than we ever thought, they will now have access to hundreds of millions of dollars. News broke on December 18th that Jared Kushner had created a shell company for an upwards of $600 million that was raised during the presidential campaign. Some of that money was siphoned off, you guessed it, to the Trump fam. Now let's put this into a little context. I'm no expert on the financing of current day presidential campaigns. And to be honest, what Jared did under our current rodeo fuck circus of American politics might actually be legal. I don't know, but we're going to find out. 
Trump's baseless election fraud claims didn't score him a win in court, but he can cash out at the bank. The New York Times reporting that he's raised enough money to pay off all of his remaining campaign bills and to fund his fruitless legal challenges and still leave tens of millions of dollars. Who would have thunk it? And that's not the only way he's bringing in the dough. Business Insider reporting today, his son-in-law and his advisor, Jared Kushner, helped create a Trump campaign shell company that secretly paid the president's family members and spent $617 million in re-election cash. But Trump continues to dupe his supporters into believing his lies. His conspiracy theories, a threatening turnout in the Georgia Senate runoffs. Trump's convicted, now pardoned former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn going as far as to say Trump should use his military power to rerun the election in swing states. Along with this, and what falls into the category of you just can't make this shit up, a very advanced cyber attack, described as the worst ever cyber attack on U.S. government agencies happened the week of December 14th, 2020. This attack, right away, got no response from President Trump. But his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, clearly stated that this was the work of Russian intelligence. Joining me now is former FBI special agent and MSNBC national security analyst Clint Watts. Clint, I've been wanting to talk to you for days since this was first alerted by FireEye because it seems so much broader, yet we have still not heard a word from the President of the United States or any of his top national security officials. Andrea, it's pretty remarkable, right? If this were China, what do you think we would have heard out of the President's mouth? And yet, again, right. let's just, just rewind over the last six to seven years what Russia has done in cyber-related to the United States. 2016, the election. Now, this time, we do really well in terms of protecting the election in 2020. But what are we missing? We're missing essentially a very sophisticated supply chain uh, hack where they essentially tunneled in through software updates that were going not just across the government, but as we know, across all of our industries, Fortune 500 companies. When you think about this, we've, we've spent billions over the last few years trying to be able to detect just a hack exactly like this or throughout any of these networks, and it failed. And in fact, we probably helped elevate Russia's game, meaning they've gotten more sophisticated. This attack is much more complex and it's much more pervasive around our country. This requires a response. This comes along, the, uh, along with reports that it is believed it was probably the Russians that were using some sort of a sonic weapon against diplomats, uh, intelligence officers, election 2016, aggression in Africa, uh, Russian PMCs, private military companies, and troops uh, showing up in Syria. Libya and assassination, poisoning of Russian dissidents, Navalny, and other Europeans across Europe. And President Trump says nothing. It is long past time for the U.S. to stand up and fight. And the reason we keep getting pushed is because we don't fight back. This is heady stuff. And I'm not here to jump to any conclusions. What I really want to do is follow the trail of information, go inside these connections, and present data, information, and insight to this axis of gangster evil that has corrupted American politics. I want to make clear this isn't some partisan attack. I'm an equal opportunity hater when it comes to both the Republican and Democratic leaders of this country. 
And who knows? Maybe our little journey will take us into Hunter Biden and his pops and what exactly was going on with that rumored Chinese money. See, my goal is not to develop a political screed, but to unpack in a real way how the oligarchs of both Russia and the United States possibly have corrupted our country at the highest levels. And in doing that, hopefully, we both can understand what the fuck is happening. I've been tracing dirty money for more than 30 years. Studying kleptocrats all over the world, distinct patterns emerge. The thing about kleptocrats is that the moves and tricks they like to use each contain the seeds of their own destruction. They can get caught at every stage. And those patterns are the basis of our new game, kleptocrat, how to hide dirty money. In virtually every case, corrupt people took six separate steps to conceal their assets. Take the money under the table, create a financial structure to hide it, move the money into the structure, network with family members to run the operation, cover up their tracks, and last, since it's no fun for the money to sit gathering dust, take the money out and enjoy it. 